0: The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What role do dreams play in the awakening of our consciousness? Can an incidental dream stay with the dreamer long enough to change their life's direction? And can we benefit from unremembered NDEs? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. Today's guest on NDE Radio is Gloria Ullman, who lives in Adelaide, Australia, where right now it's just about 2.30 in the morning, so we thank her for staying up for this. In her bio, Gloria writes, I grew up in the 1950s in a mining town in the outback of Australia. Family life was chaotic and unstable, as her father had done a disappearing act. And our mother was often hospitalized with nervous breakdowns. Some of our carers were angels; some were devils. Gloria, welcome to NDE Radio.
1: Hello, Lee. Nice to be here. Uh,
0: it's it's great that you would uh, stay up so late to uh, to be part of the show. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'd like to jump right into um, a vision you had described to me um, in brief briefly that you had when, while you were meditating, you were having you had a vision of Jesus. And this would be particularly meaningful, I would think, because you had been uh, an atheist.
1: I had. Um, as a child, I was quite religious, but I had given it up pretty much in my mid-teens and um, was, yeah, was very much an atheist at that point. There was no belief in an afterlife, certainly no belief in a God. And um, my husband was diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer, pancreatic cancer in 1996, and he was 47. And he took up meditation because there was no medical intervention that he could do, and I went along with him as moral support. And initially I had a vision of my mother who appeared to me, and she said, you don't need to be here, Gloria, you're needed back there. Um, I had been having a lot of suicidal thoughts, just thoughts. I wasn't going to do anything. Um, but I had, with that meditation, an incredible peace had come over me, which I had not really ever experienced in my life, as far as I could remember. So that was the first incident, and a couple of weeks after that, I was doing a meditation which was basically count down from 10 to zero, see the zero expand, walk through, like see yourself walk through, and then find yourself in a peaceful setting of, um, you know, whatever appealed to you. And I did that and I saw myself, it was like watching a movie. I saw myself sitting on a bench and Jesus appeared in front of me. And he said, I am the way, the truth and the light, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. And with that, I saw a facade with a door ajar and I walked in through this doorway and I just found myself in a place of light. It wasn't bright. It was like a light fog, but there were no objects within this space, and I kind of danced around free form like like a child, and then I sat down in a meditation position, and after some time, I got up and I walked out, and as I did, the light was attached to me at the back, so it kind of was attached at the back of the nape of my neck right down to my heels, my ankles, and I was pulling it with me. And as I walked, this vibration just ripped through my body and it, was, it felt kind of like it came from outside of me and entered into my body. It didn't feel like an internal thing. And with that, I kind of... Came a little bit out of the meditation, but because I had more or less trained myself to count back up, I stayed with that. And then I got to this other level where I saw myself at a bus stop, sounds really weird, and a bus came along and I got on the bus and then this man sat alongside me who would later appear in my dreams quite often, and I referred to him as my Jesus figure because he didn't really look like the historical Jesus as the vision had, the the figure in the vision had. And he said to me, where are you going? And I said, "Um, I don't know. I'm just along for the ride. And that was it. And I was just very happy. And I then came out of the, the meditation but I was really quite deeply disturbed by that and I felt almost embarrassed and the only way I, I can explain that is that I kind of felt like I'd been sprung as though I'd been caught doing something I shouldn't have. It was just that kind of feeling and um, I sat there for a while. I, I was by myself at this stage. I was in the house on my own and I sat there and I thought, I better write this down, you know, I'm, I'm not going to believe it or something anyway. So with that, I got up and put the phone back on the hook because I'd taken it off to meditate and before I had a chance to write it down, the phone rang and it was my sister-in-law, Roger's sister, from America. Um, calling mm-hmm. and she was a missionary. She had, she was still a missionary. She had been a missionary in, in Peru some years before. And immediately mm-hmm. I thought Sylvia's got something to do with this, you know, like I thought, you know, <laughs> she's, she's, she's been doing something. Um, but anyway, I didn't say anything to her about it at the time. But later on, I, uh, Yeah, after my husband died, she had a recurrence of the, of the breast cancer that she'd had. And, uh, when it came time that it looked like she was going to die, I thought, well, I'll tell her about it and I'll ask her, you know, like, did you do, did you have anything to do with this? Anyway, I did tell her and and she hadn't heard of anything like that. Um, and she said, but she was always praying for us to come to Jesus. So, so, you know, whether those prayers had an effect or not, I don't know. Um, yeah, so, so that was the initial experience. But what happened after that was that I had a lot of electrical activity within my body. I would have, um, you know, sort of like electrical spikes in my head that would happen. Um, I had a, what I would call a third eye opening kind of thing. It was almost like a silent explosion in my forehead. Um, I had that kind of thing in my chest and I would get these uh, what I call tingles and they would be very, very strong and often would start in the top of my head um, and often would, would just go right through my body. And... <clears throat> So all this sort of, all this sort of stuff uh, was happening. But then the, the dreams started after my husband died. So he did live for about six months after that. But it was almost the minute he died that the dreams just opened up. And I had never remembered dreams before. I perhaps remembered a couple of dreams throughout my whole life.
0: Hmm. <clears throat> Do you think uh, your husband had uh, a hand in activating your dream state?
1: Well, anything's possible. Um, There was an incident uh, when he was, during the time that he was sick, a friend of ours came up one day and they were having a discussion about whether or not there was life after death because Roger had, Believed pretty much as I did, you know, we were both of, of a single mind, um, as far as any afterlife or spiritual aspect or anything. But he's this friend had a mother and a sister who had both passed and they had been in the spiritualist church their whole life. And Nigel said to Roger, Oh, I don't think so. You know, if anybody was going to get get through to me it would be them and I've not heard anything um, so Roger said to him well if I survive and there's a way I'll try and get through to you and they both laughed about it you know they thought this was this was a joke hmm. but perhaps about three weeks after Roger died I'm, I'm guessing because I didn't keep a note of this um, Nigel and his wife, Came to my place and I'd been telling them about my dreams at that stage. And, and, um, Sheila said, Nigel, tell Gloria about your dream. Anyway, Nigel said that he was in bed and Roger came through the wall behind him. And Nigel looked at him and said, Roger, what are you doing here? You're dead. Oh, no, 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 he didn't. No, he said, um, what are you doing here you said you would get to me, get back to me if you could and Roger said to him this is how it's done in dreams oh. so I have to wonder but lots of things happened uh, lots of things fell into place for me it was a very difficult time I had to move house um, had businesses and um, you know, selling property and I had to close my square dance club and, you know, there's a whole lot of things that happened that I had to uh, sort out. Of
0: course. Mm. Uh, um, one of the things you also mentioned to me was the fact that uh, you you think you might have had uh, near-death experiences at least twice when you were younger, uh, that but you don't remember the details of it.
1: Yeah, well, there's, there's probably, if I think about it, there are probably about four incidents throughout my life. Um, one particularly powerful one was as a 12 year old, I was raped by an uncle. We were, um, my sister and I were living with him. He was our guardian at the time. And, um, the abuse had been going on for a long time, but it hadn't been, there had been no violence. And this particular, uh, time, what happened was that basically I blacked out with the pain. So, um, how shall I put this? I, I, don't, I don't recall what happened. All I, all I remember is being on the bed, feeling this intense pain and shock and just blacking out. And it must have been probably for about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. I would think. And when I came to, it was like my consciousness was split three ways. It was like I could see um, my face up in the, the ceiling, in the corner of the room, and that was looking at me. But it was also like I had this awareness of the whole scene at the same time. And it was almost like, there was some kind of um, telepathic communication that was going on between this consciousness that was up in the corner of the room, which actually felt like me, it still felt like me, and the me that was on the bed, and also this other kind of awareness that didn't really feel like me. But it felt like at that time that I was being given information or explanation or something. And because I don't have any memory of it, it's difficult for me to explain that. So it's more or less a feeling. Um, I had a similar experience when I had a car accident when I was 23, so that's about 11 years afterwards where I also I hit the windscreen and was knocked unconscious and I had that same sense that when I came to as though I had been somewhere else and that I and that I was kind of like in a in a meeting I was kind of like having a meeting with somebody or with some entities or something um, and again because I don't have any re- recall of it. It's more or less a feeling, but it's is something that I've wondered about um, because of this situation with the dreams where I've never, I'd never recalled my dreams through, throughout my life. And then suddenly the dream life opened up and, and I thought, well, perhaps that happens with near death experiences too. You know, do people have near death experiences that they don't remember?
0: Oh yes, I think this happens uh, quite a lot because, uh, uh, and perhaps some of it is a, uh, at least in the hospital is accountable uh, for by the fact that uh, many of the uh, drugs they use these days uh, limit short-term memory. Um, they used they used to use a drug called ketamine, which was. Uh, uh, which stimulated uh visions and what doctors called hallucinations but it made the doctors very uncomfortable to hear stories about what people saw from the other side so they've they've gone to something that actually suppresses short term memory now but that's uh, out that, that outside of your experience i was wondering with the with your 12 year old experience would that third uh consciousness that um i mean clearly you had an out of body experience i would say uh it's interesting that it was that there was a communication link between your your body's consciousness and your soul's consciousness but perhaps the third entity was some sort of a well what people might call a guardian angel or or uh, some spirit that was um trying to um mitigate some of the some of the pain of the circumstances
1: I would, that's my feeling that it was something other than, than me. And it certainly was a benevolent feeling. Um, and you know, I've often looked back on that whole situation and wondered how I got through it because I couldn't tell anybody and I I didn't, I didn't tell anybody for another 18 years and I only did then because I'd been having panic attacks and they just kept escalating to the point where, I really had to to get help, and I hadn't connected it hadn't connected the panic attacks with that situation. Um, but you know, if you if you think about like how how would a 12 year old child with no support and not being able to talk about it, or, and you know having to deal with it on their own, I would think that it's an impossibility, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though I've I've been through it. And I know that it's a possibility, but I would think that uh, uh, there would have to be some some something from beyond I, I would think that's supporting through that
0: now, now in the dreams that were activated after your after um, after your husband died um, do you have visions of um, the other side what's what's the nature of those dreams? Tell us a little um, about that.
1: Well, one of the dreams I had was uh, from Roger. Roger appeared to me and I didn't have a clear memory of a dream. It felt like it could have been an actual visit. So I'm not even sure if I was in the dream state uh, with this one, but I just woke up with this um, kind of idea in, in my head that he wanted me to speak to his mother because she wasn't letting go of him. And I didn't want to speak to my mother-in-law because we weren't really on great terms and you, also the nature of, of the communication, but it wouldn't leave me alone. And so eventually I did and I rang her and she was fine with it. You know, she wasn't, wasn't phased at all. And um, she said to me, well, whenever Whenever I think of him, I'm telling him off. <laughs> and I, said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, perhaps that's the problem. And she said, well, well, what could I do? And anyway, in the end, she said, well, I'll, when I go to sleep, I'll ask him if he's got anything to say to me, and and um, you know, I'm I'm listening. And just as I was about to put the phone down, she just suddenly blurted out. Well, isn't that typical? He, he would come and see you if he's got anything to say. Why didn't he come to see me directly? And I you know,
0: <laughs> you
1: know, I, was a bit, I was a bit taken aback by that. And I thought, well, you know, like it could be something to do with the fact that you're not very open about this communication. But anyway, I put the phone down and I'm sitting there just mulling over the conversation in my mind and then suddenly this voice said, I've tried to, and she won't let me in. And I said, "Is that you, Roger?" You're like feeling quite sheepish. And with that, um, this this intense feeling started up in the top of my head, and then it kind of just went whoosh right right through my body, right down to the floor. And then it was like it was almost like the air was sucked out of the room. It was a really weird. Really weird feeling, but that's what it felt like. Um And so that was more or less it, but it just, it it was so physical, you know, like I could not ignore it. It wasn't a product of my imagination. It felt real. So with that, I rang my mother-in-law up again and, and told her what happened. So she said, oh, well, you know, she would just try her best and and speak to him. And I did speak to her from time to time after that, but she said there was nothing to report and eventually, uh, you know, the subject was dropped. So that was one thing. Uh, But that was two and a half years after he died, and that convinced me then that something was going on because I really was very, very sceptical. And it's fear. I can see that now because it just opens up. So many questions it's much easier to believe that life just ends in nothing um, mm. you know you don't have to look any further then you don't have to answer any awkward questions so um yeah so that was so that was that dream <clears throat> and
0: when you uh, when you had the vision of Jesus that that wasn't mm-hmm. um you weren't completely convinced even by that that there was an afterlife then uh
1: no not at all i um <laughs> i'm a hard nut to crack but again it's fear it it really it <sighs> I felt I had a lot to answer for and it's ridiculous to even say that but that was the feeling that I had. I had a lot of guilt and shame over the childhood stuff and, you know, it it doesn't matter how much you tell a child that it's not their fault, the child still feels at fault and I think somehow at a soul level there's something else going on I mean I'm not quite sure how to how to put that without getting into some really difficult conversation mm. um, but, you know we these difficult relationships that we have do seem to have a component of some form of connection put it that way
0: so do you think that atheism in part comes from people's fear of uh, being judged after they die, that that's the one of the reasons they refuse to even believe in the possibility?
1: Well, that's certainly my experience. It was a defense. It, it's a defense. Mm. Um, that's, that's how I experienced it for myself. And I, certainly my husband as well, I could see that with him. And when I started to really... Uh, accept that consciousness is primary, whereas, you know, like in the past I had thought, like the material scientific viewpoint is that that matter is primary. Consciousness is a product of matter. Whereas now, I've completely reversed that and it's hard for me to even imagine that I ever felt, thought that way before. Mm -hmm. But, um, it, it, it certainly is a defence because you it opens up a lot of questions when you think that there is consciousness is producing this world. You you have to have you have to come to terms with the state of the world and the way people, particularly human beings, are. You know, I mean you have you have to come to some kind of explanation of the nature of evil. And that you know all the terrible things that go on. So, you know, the uh, if you if you think that there is a God and that God has created the world, then you have to think that God has created all this this evil. So you you have to wrestle with that whole question. And it's it's easier not to. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's been very (laughs) it's been very very difficult eighteen years for me to try and you know sort all this stuff through in my mind
0: the nature of the nature of God the nature of free will why evil should exist when uh, when only there's what there's only one creator and he's supposedly all good yes yeah. these are the big theological questions that have uh, haunted mankind for, for forever
1: yeah yeah well i've I have come to a satisfactory uh i won't say explanation because i don't think it can be e- explained um, but an un- understanding for myself that the nature of, of this consciousness that produces the whole of existence it is love you know the basis is love and certainly the near death experience literature has helped me enormously with that. And I think, you know, if you don't feel love for yourself, within yourself, which I haven't in my life, then it's it's very difficult to think that, you know, you have been created by love. So it's, um, you know, it's a lot of sorting through all the psychological stuff, you know, working through your issues, and all, <laughs> all, all of that.
0: Mm. Of course. But th- that's one of the uh, amazing things about the near-death experience reports that, uh, that we deal with on this radio show, for instance, all the time, because it, it does give you that basis of love, that, that when people cross over and go into the light, that's all they can talk about is yeah. the love and forgiveness that they feel. And mm. so it's a it may be the next evolutionary step in in how we understand what we used to deal with in religion. Uh, this may be a consciousness-raising thing that uh, that is just inevitably going to happen to, to everybody, and I hope it it's, happens soon, because we're, otherwise we're not going to be able to save the world as it is.
1: Well, there is the, certainly... The beauty lot, of the world. Yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly a lot of uh, spontaneous awakenings going on. I mean, mine, mine is just... One. Um, so if that can happen to me, I'm sure it's happening to a lot of people. <laughs> well,
0: well, listen, uh, I, I am sure people are going to want to, to learn more about you. And, um, if you would tell, uh, tell folks how they can, uh, pick up on your blog.
1: Well, my blog is called dreammysteries.net and dream mysteries is one word with just one, one M. In the middle, so it's not dream mysteries. It's dream mysteries, all one word. Dot net.
0: Okay, and uh, is there a a a way that people could leave a message for you there, or if they wanted to talk to you or or communicate with you?
1: Yes, yes. There's a email thingy there that goes goes to me. Yeah. Uh, There's, I think, on the comments something. Yeah, but they'll find it.
0: Now uh, we have perhaps a oh less than a minute, but perhaps you could uh, mention your interest in Jung.
1: Oh, Carl Jung. Well, I was led very synchronistically to the Jung Society. I heard uh, from three different people who didn't know each other about the Jung Society, and I went along. This was soon after my husband died as well, and. Um, once a month they had a, have a meeting and i would go there and i would sit and i would not understand anything that was said but something kept compelling me and um basically carl jung's psychology is a spiritual psychology that's the way i explain it and uh he's yes yeah, so i go so the jung the jungian psychology really helped me a lot
0: A lot of that, of course, came out of his own near-death experience, which he wrote about, which is fascinating. Uh, Oh, Gloria, I'm afraid we're out of time for today. Um, I want to thank you so much for – go ahead.
1: Yes, it was lovely to talk to you. (laughs)
0: Um, And uh, for you to stay up until so late uh, in (laughs) uh, Adelaide, I I do appreciate that.
1: Yeah, Um,
0: But I want to thank our guest, Gloria Ullman, for describing the importance of dreams and visions and how they can enlighten your life. And if you'd like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about the work of IANs, check out their website, iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.